Well, really great to be with you, everybody, today. Thank you very much for that uh, welcome. Uh, lovely to be here and lovely to uh, be beginning this new series. This is our God looking at the, uh, looking at the Lord, focusing on him for a, a number of weeks and uh, using the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament to help us uh, to do that. Um, in 1947, uh, there was a, a Bedouin shepherd I'm just introduced, we've had a bit of feedback that we don't mention Bedouin shepherds from the 1940s enough, so we're here to put that right. Um, who was looking for his uh, lost goat uh, around the caves of Qumran, not far from the Dead Sea in uh, Israel. And he went into one of these caves and he made a rather strange discovery. He found a number of these clay jars. This is not one of the actual ones. This is a, a replica of one of the things he found. The, the real thing would have been about three foot high. So if you can imagine on, on me, I'm six foot four. So it would have... <clears throat> I don't know why you're laughing at that. The, the lights in here make me look a bit... Okay. So it would have come up to uh, more than half of me. And um, he found inside that there were uh, uh, lots of scrolls, or a scroll in each one of these jars. And so he and his friends, they wondered what to do with these. They took it back to uh, his community. And after a few days, they decided that they would make the short trip, two or three miles into Jerusalem, where they took a couple of these scrolls and they sold them to a trader for the equivalent of around 15 pounds sterling. Okay, a bit of a shame for them because it turned out these scrolls were actually part of uh, arguably the greatest archaeological discovery of our time. You've probably heard of them, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and they are literally priceless. What you might not know is that one of those scrolls was, if it'll have come out, uh, was actually one of the best preserved, one of the longest, was a full copy of the book of Isaiah. And it is known as the great Isaiah scroll. Again, this is a replica, not the actual thing. They wouldn't trust me with that. Uh, but I have seen the actual thing. Uh, when I was in Israel, uh, some 10 years ago, I think now, uh, I went to the Israel Museum and this uh, beautiful looking, strange looking building really, uh, called the Shrine of the Book. And in there on display, they had the great Isaiah scroll as it's now known. And uh, if you've ever seen pictures of the, the Bayer tapestry or you've actually been to see it, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's on the wall for you to, to have a look at. And I, I feel really privileged that I've seen the great Isaiah scroll, not least just because it's so old and so well preserved, you know, dates from about 100 BC, maybe even earlier. Uh, the oldest copy they had before that was from around 950 AD, so it's a thousand years older. But the other reason I feel privileged to have seen it is it reminds me that the Bible did not fall out of heaven, leather-bound and complete with maps. That actually the Bible was given as a dynamic message to men of God like Isaiah, to people of God, with a message for his people to lift them up for their encouragement. And it is an eternal message that speaks to us today. So as we go through Isaiah through this series, we are actually looking at the words of God himself. The Isaiah scroll is a message from the Lord himself and what a message it is as we read through Isaiah we see the Lord's salvation we see his justice we see the coming of the Messiah we see the new heavens and the new earth and we see one theme which stands tall above them all which is one of two reasons I think that it's great that we're using the book of Isaiah for this series where we're going to look at the Lord where we're going to study the Lord where we're going to look to him and that is that Isaiah is a book about God himself that is the theme that stands out above all other things. The second reason I think it's great that we're using Isaiah in this series as we look at the Lord is that we want to make sure that we're getting a full view of God, 
a both-sided view. We don't want to be lopsided. Don't just want to consider one side of him and ignore the other. And Isaiah is a prophet who loves a paradox. You know what a paradox is? When you see two things that look contradictory, but they both happen to be true. Well, Isaiah is full of this. And therefore, it will give us a balanced view. As we look at the Lord as both um, judge and saviour, we will see the Lord as both holy and approachable. We will see the Lord as both the suffering servant and the triumphant king. And so it'll give us this full view of just who our God is. Unless we think, what does that mean? We're having a few weeks off from personal transformation and we're just looking at the Lord. We're just having like a sort of theology exercise. Not at all. One of the most transforming things you can ever do is study the Lord, is look to the Lord, is think about the Lord as we're going to be doing throughout this series. Let me illustrate. Yesterday morning, I did what I do most Saturday mornings these days. Um, I went to watch my uh, eight-year-old son, my eldest son, Jack, play football. And um, my wife was away doing something very important. So I had the pleasure of taking my six-year-old and my two-year-old to watch as well. I say watch the football when you're with a six-year-old and a two-year-old. It's quite hard to watch all of it. But anyway, and although it is a very serious business, watching Jack, and I really mean that, um, there are big elements of humour. And one of them comes from the fact that it's very, very clear just how much these boys are influenced by the football they see on the telly. We see them do lots of things that don't make any other sense unless you watch a bit of football yourself. For example, we see lots of celebrations like this, if you know what that means. Why are they doing that? Because they've been watching Ronaldo. Okay? Um, we see other things like them um, getting knocked by someone, rolling over on the ground and banging the grass like it really hurts, just like the professionals do, Uh, and then getting up and running around like nothing happened, just like the professionals do. Um, One of my personal favourites was actually uh, one seven-year-old running away from having scored and doing this celebration. Now, if you don't know what that is, that's what a striker does when he scores the next goal after his wife's just had a baby. Now, quite why a seven-year-old is doing this, I'm not sure. But I've also seen a very strange one, actually. There was a, a little boy who just kept cheating and cheating and cheating. And when we confronted him about it, um, he just started handing out money to everyone to cover it up. And why is he doing that? He's been watching Manchester City. <clears throat> Sorry about that one. Up to the very last moment, I was thinking, should I? Should I? I don't know. Now, what's my point here? My point is that the boys behave that way because they've been watching. If I can put it like this, there is a principle that runs right throughout life, and it is this. You become what you behold. And over this series, what we're going to be doing through this wonderful scroll of Isaiah, we're going to be beholding the Lord. And I trust that as we do, we will become more like him. And today, we're going to begin by beholding the Lord as both a judge and a saviour. And as we do, my prayer is that Holy Spirit will work upon us that we might become more like him and have a scripture to go along with that. 2 Corinthians 3.18 teaches this very principle. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So my prayer is throughout this talk and throughout this series is that we will allow the Holy Spirit to work on us that as we behold the Lord, as we gaze upon him, it will not be a dry theological exercise, but the Spirit will work on us that we might become what we might behold, that we might be transformed as we look upon the Lord. And we're going to behold him in two ways today. And the first one is we are going to behold God as judge. So number one, we're going to think of the Lord as judge. 
The book of Isaiah begins, uh, chapter one and verse one, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah then is an eighth century prophet. By this time, the kingdom has been split into two and he's ultimately a prophet ministering to the southern kingdom. So known as Judah and Jerusalem, if you like, the sort of capital. And he's there for a long time, four kings, probably five actually. Uh, according to tradition, Isaiah was killed in a very brutal way by the evil king Manasseh. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, when it says some were sawn in two, that's probably a reference uh, to the prophet Isaiah. But after he begins his uh, book with this verse, what we then launch straight into uh, in chapter one and right up to chapter five really, is basically a law court scene. We see the Lord really read out his list of charges that he has against his people, against the way they're behaving in this time. It's like the people of God at that point in the eighth century BC, it's like they're in the dock and God is the judge. Now, I'm not as silly as I look. I know that this picture of God as judge is not necessarily the most uh, popular picture of God outside the church and probably inside the church as well. But actually in this series, we wanna, like we said, consider all sides of God. And the best way to think about why people have that negative image as God as judge is not to pretend that God isn't a judge, but rather to ask the question, what kind of judge is he? And Isaiah answers that question for us. We see in Isaiah chapter one, that God is a judge who is fair and that God is a judge who cares. First of all, he is a judge who is fair. You know, I think part of the reason we have a negative connotation when we think of God as judge, if we do, is because we think about our experience of being judged. And it's not very pleasant, is it? I'd rather be complimented than judged most of the time if you give me the option. You know, we think of being judged as perhaps being unfair, perhaps people don't know about us, perhaps it's a, a malicious thing going on. But we have to remind ourselves that when we're talking about God's judgment, it's not like that. God knows everything and it's never malicious. It's always faithful, it's always fair, it's always righteous. And actually, if we can take our minds off ourselves for a moment and think about, do we actually want to see a world where justice takes place, where fairness is restored, then we realise actually we need a judge for that. See, God is looking on the people of Israel at that time and he's seeing plenty of religious activity but as we see in Isaiah chapter one, actually the religious activity might be there, but the heart behind it is all wrong. It sees that people aren't sticking up for the vulnerable in society. They're not looking after widows. They're not looking after orphans. They've turned their back on God. They're doing their own thing. They're spending lots of money on their jewelry and their houses and things like that. But there are people among them who need help and they're not doing anything for But God is a fair judge. And when he talks about judging in this society, he is gonna do something to put it right says this in Isaiah 11, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. This is a righteous judge, a fair judge who wants to put society right, a social justice judge, if you like, who wants to make sure that those who are not being looked after are being looked after. It's like he's looking down and seeing his people in their houses, spending money on themselves, being up doing extensions and paying for jewellery and all this stuff. And then he's seeing the widow crying herself to sleep, not enough money to feed her children. And he doesn't like it. He wants to bring justice in this situation. And I believe when we get a heart for that, when we behold the Lord as a fair judge, we will actually become like him. We will be those who wanna put things right in society. 
as we've been hearing about, all the stuff we do at Kingsgate. I think it gives us the heart for that when we actually see things like uh, Care Zone and helping out Food Bank and things like that. We want to help those who are vulnerable. And this is what we mean when we think of God as a judge who is fair. But secondly, he is a judge who cares. I remember shortly after I became a Christian, I went with a bunch of my friends to watch a comedian. As comedians, very sort of anti-God and so on. And I knew about this, had only been a Christian a few months. And he, he did this bit about how he prefers the Old Testament God. It was all mocking and so on. And he was talking about, you know, God going round and sort of just judging everyone left, right and centre, sort of zapping everyone with lightning and all this kind of stuff. And then afterwards, one of my friends said to me, you know, Tom, you did very well there not to react when he was saying all that. But I just remember thinking, well, why would I react? As such a caricature, there's nothing for me to react to. I mean, apart from the fact that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are one and the same God, this whole caricature that God as portrayed in the Old Testament is just this horrible, angry, arbitrary judge who just loves going around zapping everybody with lightning. It's just complete nonsense. God isn't like that. God isn't a judge who sits there and just can't wait to judge people. God is a judge who judges people through tears, judges people through a broken heart. Just look at chapter one of the book of Isaiah and just listen to this image. Hear me, you heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. This is not a judge who just loves to judge, who loves to condemn, who loves to risk out charge on people. This is a father whose children have turned against him. You see that image, you see the heartbreak in that. Or even more so later on, how the faithful city has become a harlot. If you've got the NIV in front of you there, it'll actually say prostitute. But actually prostitute gives you this kind of idea of someone who's fallen on hard times. No one really wants to be a prostitute after all. But actually the Hebrew there is talking about someone who's kind of promiscuous and proud of it, who's cheating on somebody, who's being unfaithful. This is the image of God. This is somebody who is in covenant relationship with somebody else and they've been let down, they've been cheated on, they've been hurt. This is how God feels. And I think if we, if we get a heart for this, we'll understand our sin so much better. We'll not think about it in formulaic terms, but we realise when we sin how much we hurt God. It is like we are betraying Him, if you like. And what we see even more of the heartbreak later on is how God reacts to the way His people react to this charge. See, it's not that they just disappear altogether, but rather what they do is they carry on with their religious activity, even though they're not living the way God wants to. And God objects to this. And that's what we read in Isaiah chapter one. It seems quite funny at first glance because God has told his people that they should be sacrificing animals to show that there is a cost to their sin. He has shown them that they ought to be coming to his temple courts and worshipping and praying and so on. And yet in Isaiah one, he seems to object to all this which seems rather odd to object to something when you're the very one who's told everyone to behave that way. But I think if we understand what God is going through, we can understand why he objects to people making these sacrifices and so on in this situation. When I was a little bit younger, I remember there was a friend of mine and she was getting together with this guy and it was all going you know, really well, it sort of seemed all romantic and sweet and so on. And then he let her down, okay? He was unfaithful. He went with this other girl for a brief period, let's just say. And although on a technicality, he could kind of claim that he hadn't been unfaithful because they hadn't actually got together officially, I think even he knew that that wouldn't really wash. 
And so he made this big romantic gesture. He sent some flowers to her house. And I remember going to speak to her because she hadn't spoken to him for a few weeks, actually, after he'd um, sent these flowers. And when I spoke to her, she said to me that it wasn't that she didn't like flowers, right? You know, she understood what that's all meant to be about. But it wasn't that the flowers had made anything better. If anything, they'd made it worse for her. She was basically saying, look, he doesn't understand just how much he's, and she used the word, disrespected me. But you could tell in her voice, you could tell in her eyes that it meant so much more than just disrespect. She felt let down. She felt betrayed. She felt violated by what he'd done. And again, the flowers didn't make it better. They made it worse because it was like she was saying she understands what flowers are meant to be. They're meant to be a symbol of like contrition, of a broken heart to say, I understand what I've done to you and I want to put it right. But she didn't sense any of the heart behind that symbol. She just thought like he was almost just buying her off with these flowers and he had no idea just how much he'd hurt her, just how much he'd betrayed her, just how bad he'd made her feel. And this idea that he could just make this, what seemed like this big empty gesture to put it right, it made her feel even worse. It made her just feel like this is a hypocrisy. And I believe that's something about how the Lord feels when his people let him down. And then they try and just do this empty religious activity to put it right. Listen in Isaiah chapter one, as we read the Lord's heart behind this as his people engage in that activity. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams, of the fattened animals. I've no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Can you see in that? He's instituted these practices that they should do these sacrifices to show that sin matters, this coming to his courts, this prayer and so on. But God's not sensing their heart behind it. This is to him an empty gesture. He wants them to put it right. He wants them to turn away from their sin, not just to go through the motions. Unless we think this only applies as a kind of history lesson to the people of God in the 8th century BC, we have to be careful to remember that we can be just the same very often. We can go through the motions, if you like, We can sometimes forget just how much our sin hurts God, how they make him feel. And instead, we can think, well, we'll just put it right by saying a quick prayer or whatever, but I believe the heart behind God, no, he wants us to come back into relationship with him. Do you know, I think if we understand this, that we are in relationship with him and that when we turn our backs to him, it hurts him just as a lover who's been betrayed hurts or a father whose children have turned against him or her. I believe if we understand this, we'll understand our sins so much better, our repentance will be so much deeper and our transformation will be so much greater if we can understand that we have a God who is a judge, a judge who is fair and a judge who cares. So that's the first thing, we behold the Lord as judge. The second thing, God as saviour. See, it's one thing though to say it's a good thing to have God as judge because one day when God judges the whole world, he'll put the whole world right, he will bring justice. But that's to over-egg it just a little bit because what about when that judgment actually comes on us? What about when it's Tom Webster's time in the dock? 
What about, as it says in Hebrews, it's given for each person to die once and after that face the judgment. How do I feel actually? When I realise that this list of charges doesn't just count against the people of God in the 8th century BC, but this actually fits me pretty well before God's intervention. That actually I had no interest in the needy in society or the vulnerable, but rather almost everything is all about me in my life. What am I to do with that? Well, praise God, God is not just a judge, he is a saviour as well. And Isaiah tells us, or gives us a glimpse at least in chapter one of what we're to do and what the Lord does. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. See, the Lord in this is saying, turn away. You've been going in this direction, turning your back on me and walking towards sin. Turn around, repent. Take responsibility for what you've done and start to put it right. But we also see in Isaiah chapter one that clearly we can't put it right by ourselves. Because just after this, verse one, uh, chapter one, verse 18, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. Now scarlet was a dye in the ancient world. And if you had a white garment and you dyed it scarlet, let me just say, that was never gonna be white again. That's the image he's using here, these um, images of dyes of scarlet and crimson. Once they are dyed that colour, it's never coming out. So yes, he's saying take responsibility and get yourself clean, but then there's this other image that says, actually, you can never get yourself clean. Your sins are scarlet and they will never be white again unless the Lord intervenes. And I think this is one of the most beautiful, you know, if you're ever stuck in a sin habit and you're feeling condemned, I think this is one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. How can this possibly work then? If we can't do it by ourselves, how can it possibly be that if our sins are like that white garment that's been stained, that's been dyed scarlet or crimson, how can it ever be white like snow, white like wool again? And of course the answer is because we have God as a saviour. If you imagine when I first became a Christian, if you imagine at that point when I started to realise that God was a righteous judge, a fair judge, a judge who, when I'm in the dock, must actually condemn me for the sins that I've committed. It was as though he'd come along and said, right, here is your rap sheet, Tom, and we are going to write on it in a scarlet pen everything that you've done wrong, everything that you've said wrong, everything that you've thought wrong. And not only that, we are going to think of every sin, past, present and future, everything that you should have done but didn't do. Every time you didn't look to the needy or look after the impressed, oppressed or thought about yourself. And in time, my charge sheet, once that scarlet pen has worked, will look like this. And as I wait then in the dock for my judgment to go into the high court of heaven, this is the rap sheet. This is the charge that against me. And since God is a fair and righteous judge, he must, if he's going to be a fair and righteous judge and bring justice, he must condemn me. And I want you to just think for a moment, because you probably know what's coming in some way, but what if the universe was like that? What if all those things that I'd done wrong, what if I did pay the price, if it was totally just and there was no way out, if God's intervention wasn't there, what would that be like? How would I feel at that moment when I realised my sin was against me and there was nothing I could do about it? But then praise God, there's somebody ahead of me in the queue. There's somebody before me who's actually going to go into the dock before me. 
And I might turn and say to him, is there anything we can do about this? Perhaps we could bribe the judge to get off this. And he says to me, no, we'll never bribe this judge. He's a righteous judge. I say, well, how do you know? He says, because that judge is my father. And this is Jesus Christ who is in the queue ahead of me. And he is the one who is gonna go into the dock before me. And this is his rap sheet. Though mine is scarlet, his is white as snow. But this isn't a story of just him going into the dock and getting off and then me having to face judgment. Rather, what he says to me is, there is one way. Will you repent of your sins and will you come to me, Tom Webster? And when I say yes to him, he says to me, here, let me take that from you. And he takes my scarlet sins and he puts them upon himself. And he says, here, let me give you this. And he heads into the dock and he is condemned for my sins. He takes upon himself the punishment that I deserve, that you deserve, that we all deserve. And he is condemned to be scourged and then taken to the cross. And on the cross, it is not just the physical pain of crucifixion, but actually the punishment of all the sins that I have committed, that you have committed, past, present and future, that comes upon the Lord. And he takes every single one of those sins upon himself to the point where he is actually separated from his eternal father when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he went through that, that I might be saved. He went through that, that I might instead have his rap sheet over me. So now when the Lord looks at me, from the high court of heaven. What does he see? Does he see my sins of scarlet? No, he sees this, that they are now as white as snow. Not because anything I've done, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. So we rejoice that we have God who is a judge because he will bring justice to the whole world because it means we live in a moral world because we live in a fair world and one day justice will be done. But when that justice comes upon us, it's not such a pleasant story. So we rejoice in the fact that God is a saviour and he will bring that justice on himself in the person of his son that we never need face that justice. So we rejoice in the fact that he is both judge and saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us I thank you that you are a God who is both a fair and caring judge who will bring justice to this world, Lord. I thank you also that you are a saviour, that we don't have to face that justice, but rather in the person of your son, you have taken that judgment upon yourself and that we go free, that we might live with you forever, that we might wear a robe that is as white as wool, that is as white as snow. Lord, thank you that you are both judge and saviour. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.